0: Justin Bullock here with Gregory Galls. How are you, Greg?
1: I'm all right, Justin. Happy 2021. Ah, Man, I feel a little bit better
0: about 2021. I mean, there's a lot of stuff to be uh, concerned about, but uh, I'm happy that it's 2021 and not 2020 anymore. Amen. (laughs) Not going to find any disagreement from you, huh? No, no. Well, it's good to see you. We are in week three of our semester. How do you, uh, how do you feel in week three? Do you feel beat down yet?
1: Uh, No, Uh, I'm teaching this semester. So I Uh I enjoy being in the classroom, even though I'm behind a plexiglass screen and wearing a mask and everybody's wearing a mask and I kind of can't tell my students are because I can't see their faces, but uh, you know, we're we're doing our best to educate in these circumstances, but uh, we have to keep doing this in the fall, you know, that, then I'll be beat down. I mean, I, I, I'm ready for a vaccine.
0: Well, the good news is they, they exist. It's just a, an administration question of whether or not we, or an implementation question of whether or not we can get it to enough people in enough time. It's like these, uh, it reminds me of those scenes in movies where you've got two characters running towards something and you're cutting here and cutting there. And it's hard to know who's actually going to make it except ours is, vaccines and people dying, which um, makes it a whole lot less fun, but uh, very important that we get it right.
1: Yeah, it's, this is your public administration field. I mean, mm-hmm. we need, we need people to be able to get those vaccines where they belong in our arms.
0: Yeah, actually, there are people that are using this as an example, as why, as to the limits of centralized planning, uh, rather mm-hmm. than decentralized planning. Um, and I, uh, it's an interesting case for that. I'm not sure that, you uh, it all cuts in one direction like people would like it to be. Both camps yeah. to seem to think like either this is a very huge win for centralized planning and get it, getting it done, or a very huge failure for centralized planning because it's taking so long.
1: Well, you needed centralized planning to to jumpstart the, the vaccine process. I don't think that could have been done in a decentralized way. And uh, I, I'm not usually one to praise the Trump administration, but I'll give him credit for for Operation Warp Speed on on actually creating the vaccines, but I think that they were so busy thinking about that they didn't think about distribution. Yeah. And and while yeah, the last mile right or the last you know the last twenty five feet of, of the of the chain are are the most uh, difficult frequently. But you needed a national distribution system if these vaccine these vaccines are can't be. Distributed willy-nilly, right? Because it's the federal government that's contracting for them. I think, for the most part, or, or or completely, and and so you need a distribution system that gets to the locals. Then the locals need a distribution system. So yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think you can have it without. You know, we're not we're not a centralized state like you know Great Britain, which really doesn't have that much in terms of local government. You know, we have robust local governments and public health has been one of the, you know, one of the charges of local government for a long state and local. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that that you need the you need the centralized people to do right, do, you know, do well, and you need the local people to do well.
0: Yep. Well, um, a couple things. So we've only gotten together once since the um since both the inauguration and since the, I don't know what the term everyone has decided counts for the uh, riots at the Capitol or the mob or the insurrection or the coup or whatever. I like, I like the
1: insurrection.
0: I like insurrection. Yeah, that's the one that I mostly um, come down on. So, you know, last week we had Professor Gottlieb who I really enjoyed having her on, helping us situate some of the challenges uh, ex- outside of the U.S. that we see to democracies kind of sliding in this different direction um, and that we see maybe some evidence of it in the U.S. So I want to maybe use that as like a launching point to kind of jump in today. We haven't really gotten to talk about what's happened as part of the inauguration. How has the transition been going? How do we how do we think the new administration is doing? And so I want to maybe maybe start there and I can maybe set us up a little bit um, which we got, to, we got to talk about a little bit last time. But, you know, the Biden administration inherited um, a, a, a situation that I think it's as polarized as maybe we've ever been, you know. And so this is going to present some real. Well,
1: Li- Lincoln inherited a more polarized. That's true. That's true.
0: Well, I won't disagree with that at all. But a very and uh, I don't I mean, yeah. And we'll use Lincoln as what could be the extreme of this, right? Which is leading to uh, a fractured society that has to yeah. be brought back together by violent means. Yeah. Um, so we, we have a little, like a big challenge here, but I have to say, I've just been relieved. It's been really nice to not feel like you have to counter every falsehood, every lie, every conspiracy theory when it's coming out of the white house, when it's just, which I, you know, I we decided we'd talk about it a little bit, but when it's just a representative, when it's just Marjorie Green saying insane, crazy conspiracy things, that's one thing. But when it's the top of your organization saying them for four years, I don't wake up and look at the news every morning anymore. I wait I, till noon.
1: <laughs> I, I, I find myself consuming a lot less news, yep. which is just fine. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I mean, you and I are both news junkies. But I think our consumption of news for the past four years was—I uh, think in my case it was at an unhealthy level. Yeah, it was definitely. Uh, I was—I was neglecting other things mm-hmm. uh, because I was so focused on the news, and I—I I couldn't help myself. But I'm very happy to be bored by politics <laughs> again. You know, and—and and, you know what's happening is not boring, yeah. but it's normal. It's it's normal, Uh, you know. You don't have to you don't have to worry what Joe Biden's going to tweet. Yeah, right. It's a huge relief. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So one of the things about this that I wanted to talk about was so as the insurrection played out, it was it was kind of horrifying to watch on television, and then as the details came out over the next few weeks, it was more horrifying. I think at how close they came to the Vice President, then Vice President Mike Pence, how close they got to speak, uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, that uh, this was really, really scary. But the other thing that I watched play out in real time was the twisting of the narrative by the Trump crowd. And mm. it was really kind of um, bizarre. Uh, it was the most kind of Orwellian thing I saw play out in the entire like presidency, I thought, because here it was on TV. It was clear examples of other Americans storming the U.S. Capitol building. And the the kind of propaganda machine was able to twist that into some really weird, crazy places that come out from the, the, the right, then uh, not always not always supporting, but not really disavowing this Um uh, as fully as you would like. so what has been your sense of in the aftermath of that? Does it feel like now that that narrative has settled in? I mean, I heard some really really bizarre conspiracy theories at the beginning of this. Um, what are you where are you on how kind of the information flow is is kind of settled around this?
1: So it I, I mean, I don't know. I don't populate the the corners of the internet. and as you know, I don't have a Twitter account, so I don't. <laughs> I I, I try to keep myself somewhat immune from this stuff, but one good indicator of the reactions to the insurrection is the Congressional Republican Party. Where are they on on the president? I mean, on the the former president, where are they on uh, impeachment and conviction? Where are they on uh, Trump's role going forward in the party? And it it seems to me, you know, who knows what they think in their heart of hearts, but very, very few of the congressional Republicans are willing to cross Donald Trump even out of office. Uh, We saw that immediately after the insurrection with the number of members of the House of Representatives who were willing to challenge the... The electoral votes of states that that voted for Biden and and whose own state processes and state courts certified that that the vote was free, fair and accurate. Uh, And and so it's I, I think that that's a good barometer, you know, maybe a year from now we'll reassess, but right now, congressional Republicans don't want to cross Donald Trump. And and that means that at least some proportion of the 74 million people who voted for him uh, either believe that what happened on January 6th isn't that important, or that Donald Trump really had nothing to do with it, or one hopes this is the smallest number, but, you know, these strange alternative reality stories that you were referencing like you know this was a false flag operation by the left that this was an effort to besmirch trump or, or you know all that craziness you yeah. know even kevin mccarthy who's you know refused to break with trump and went down and kissed trump trump's ring in mar-a-lago a few days ago you know even he's reported to have told trump on the phone you know he's weren't anti antifa I was there. They were your people. Yeah,
0: yeah. It does seem that um, the response has not been to disavow it, and I think the congressional Republican group is really, to your point, the barometer that shows that. Um, and in how the uh, the electoral college vote voting day or counting day it wasn't voting day, but counting day played out. Um, I was, I mean. I don't know why. It Wasn't I,
1: even it was the certifying. It was day, certifying. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And I think it was it was really a depth that I was surprised they uh, like was still able to be surprised that they went to after a violent attempt at the Capitol that same day. They were so committed to this to this uh, whatever this ideology, this you know uh, insurrection. That- do
1: you think it, do you think it's an ideology? I think it's a god.
0: You think it's a what? A guy? I
1: think it's, I think it's a person. I don't Trumpism. I guess it's I guess it's a, a you know, there's the white supremacy element of it that's the 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 dog whistle. And then there's a couple explicit elements of of uh you know, we don't like trade, we don't like immigration. We think our allies are screwing us. Uh I don't know, is that an ideology or is it just a leader, you know, kind of a leader principle? Well, I mean, Mussolini, Mussolini was an intellectual. You know, Mussolini wrote books and articles and stuff like that. You know, Donald Trump hasn't even read the books that he's written. <laughs> so I don't, I, you know, I don't know if it's an ideology. Yeah, I don't know The ideology is
0: the right word. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really good point, but I think it maybe is bigger than him at this point. I don't know that it has a coherent narrative that and maybe that makes it more dangerous because it's more like a mob in that way. Yeah. It can just kind of be directed in whatever uh, direction that day. Yeah. And that it, it does feel like it's a, um, yeah, it, it feels like a, a cult like mob that doesn't have like an ideological center, but it's also not clear, you know, that the anger or the whatever it is that, that whips up that, that closing off the mind and that hate stuff, uh, whatever that is, uh, it w- it's got to be addressed. Which maybe is my is my next question. As we're kind of ne- is going through this together, we, we've talked about this a little bit. But as we're on the other side, at least of the transfer of power, I mean, w- what do you think? I mean, what do we? How do we uh, bridge this kind of insanity of this kind of cult personality? This uh, you know this mob mentality of kind of 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 hate and of guillotines and of all this other madness. I mean, you know, to your point, it's not seventy something million Americans, but I have conversations with people who I would not think of as people who would show up at the Capitol um, that are not, you know, they're not on Reddit, they're not in the Q nine forums, but you know, I talk to people from rural America, and they, a lot of them, really think the election was stolen. It's completely illegitimate. Yeah. And now the talking point has shifted almost immediately on a dime to a fear of the market and that it's going to collapse at any time because it always collapses when Democrats are in charge.
1: So it's like there's a which is completely untrue. Not true.
0: Yeah. Yes, it's not. It also happens to not be true, which I pointed out to these people um, that the late 90s um, and early 2000s, we were doing quite well as one point. And we did pretty well under the Obama years, just as two recent examples of recent Democrats.
1: <laughs> yeah, ni- you know, 1929, there were no Democrats in the White House. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and you know, more recently, the stock market has done better in Democratic administrations than in Republican administrations. Not that I think the stock market is the, you know, the major indicator of Sure, of, the of the health of of the of the nation's economy just look at this past year my lord uh, well we don't have to get into the stock market but because there's a larger question here obviously and I I don't I wish I knew I mean to some extent maybe time you know Trump talks himself out maybe maybe he has legal problems he he seems more and more in ineffectual maybe he, enters into some high profile primaries in 2022 with endorsements and his candidates lose and and some of the fire goes out. I mean, some of this might just be waiting it out. I think some of it uh, has got to be an effective response to COVID and a, a larger effort to address the inequalities that have been developing in the economy, uh, which I think a successful Biden administration could do, which might take some of the heat off some of this stuff, or at least reduce the the, the potential uh, mobilizable following for a, a kind of a post Trump Trumpism, uh, but. You know, the infor- I, I don't think that we can manage the information space. You know, we, we, the cost of managing the information space would be, you know, I think pretty serious. We're, we, we tend in this country to be, you know, good First Amendment absolutists. The Europeans are a little more willing to manage their information space. Uh, but we're not, and, and I appreciate and understand that. Uh, So I I don't have good answers to this, but I mean, I think it's going to involve some amount of time. And I think that, you know, there's the performative aspect of politics and Trump, you know, mastered that in terms of trying to mobilize people who felt that their way of life and and their white privilege was was under threat. Uh, Their Christianity was under threat. He he stoked that and then you know performatively defended their position. Yeah, and and I don't think that Biden can reach these that constituency through performative politics because uh, the Democratic Party just doesn't accept you know the premises uh, of of that constituency. But I do think he might be able to reach them through you know good old fashioned bread and butter issues you know maybe i'm maybe i'm uh, maybe i'm becoming a marxist in my old age justin that, oh goodness you goodness. know we're uh, really
0: having fun on this podcast if we if shift that way and you become a marxist where does that where does that leave me left of you i think we'll get into some really dangerous territory i don't
1: i don't i don't know but you know i used to be a republican back in the day i know you were yeah, now yeah. i'm and now i'm saying you know what we really need is is uh we got to address inequality. Well, I, I think so, because I think that the, the pendulum has swung quite a ways.
0: There's on- evidence mm-hmm. on this too, just at the macro level, that the, a big piece of this. So so my thoughts, that, I know I interrupted you. Um, did you have anything yeah. you wanted to finish? Okay, yeah. So
1: uh, I'm a professor. I could blather on for <laughs> hours, but I didn't have anything really important to say. That's why we're
0: able to fill the time. Huh?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> so the, the structural issues, I think are... There are two really important ones, and you hit on both of them. I think that that we that I would pitch to our audience to be thinking about. One is this structural inequality from an economic standpoint, and how are we going to deal with that? And there's a lot of economic evidence now. I think there's a was I attended a talk last week that was the MIT's big report on this and the relationship between the economy and wages and what the challenges are, and it's pretty clear. That the GDP is doing, you know, one of these numbers, it's going up and median wages since the 70s and uh, are just not. And they're actually, in in some important ways, probably declining in their relative purchasing power for the people who were already doing well at that time. Hence yes. the, the white men group um, and white women to some degree. Um and so there's like the structural the structural inequalities around economics that I think we've got to do something about. And I'll offer at least a little bit of a different view, I think, on this information space because i I don't know what the answer is. Um, exactly. I have some thoughts that we've discussed, but I, th- I think we're gonna have to regulate the the larger information spaces in similar ways that we've regulated um, other public areas, at least around speech. So there is like, there are some norms around like um, not yelling fire in um, in a crowded movie theater. There are some norms around when your information can be shared so broadly and cause so much damage. So I think there are some ways we can get into once platforms become so large, you treat them in a regulatory way that's different than smaller communities.
1: So, so is this like television in the 50s and 60s and 70s?
0: I think the television and also like. Um,
1: it made things very anodyne. Right. In way? I mean, well. You couldn't really talk, you couldn't, you couldn't have interesting debates on television about politics because of the equal time rule. Uh, there was a real uh, reluctance to engage in anything but the most middle of the road kind of meet the press, you know, uh, pundits asking politicians questions. And there's nothing wrong with pundits and reporters asking politicians questions, but it—that was like the only way politics got discussed, because the 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 broadcast networks just shied away from it, you know, uh, because they were worried about their licenses. I think so. Cable opened things up, right mm-hmm. now. Some of that, you know, was bad, maybe. (laughs) Bad, but 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 it certainly opened up the arena for political speech, Mm -hmm. and and I don't think that we can. I don't think we can walk that back. I think it's just a question of of. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't think we can. I don't think it would be good to walk it back. So, what's your? So, give
0: me your thoughts on this. I mean take it from a different tack, which is instead of regulating specifically what people can say, you regulate the way in which the information is presented to them. Here's what I mean by that. So both Facebook and Google, as the two examples of this that I've looked into and that we've talked about, the way in which they deliver their information to you is not in a like, um, it's not in a demand from your perspective. <laughs> yeah. you're the you're the product, as they say which right. is, is the easiest way. It's not the an exact analogy, but it's the easiest one. And so I do think that you know, if you take that parallel to the public dialogue space, it's weird that what dialogue you receive is based upon a private company's interest in selling you a product yeah. or in some other third party entities. Creating uh, memes, for lack of a better word, but but creating arguments that they can hide behind, that they can be deceitful about without engaging in the conversation. And so, you know, as you were, as you're giving feedback on the actual speech, I think that's that's right. I mean, I'm in, in general, uh, I want to have as much free speech as possible um, because that's how we get good ideas in general. But if the whole space is dominated by this weird. Uh, organization of information by profit making. That's, I think there's something there that we could regulate that isn't what people can say individually, but the actual information sphere being more about not, you know, kind of like a Wikipedia model of some sort where it's maximizing on knowledge or information, not on uh, some other entities wanting to sell you something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyways, one of the things that I wanted to get on today too is, is What is the GOP going to do with the more extreme elements? So even within the the caucus, there are more and less extreme um, supporters of the former president. The one that I'm often the one that I was familiar with earlier on, because being a a Georgian, uh, being from Georgia, was uh, Marjorie Greene, who then kind of went to really crazy land uh, in the days following the insurrection and the days uh, uh, leading up and following the inauguration and one interesting thing that I did not anticipate that played out was Mitch McConnell signaling that this was a her dialogue was one or two steps too far for him. Um, and so do you do you still see even though the congressional Republicans kind of rallied around Trump, do you see kind of an expulsion of some of these more extreme
1: is in those caucus? No. No. I mean, I think this was the it- this was cheap talk from Mitch McConnell. She's not in his caucus. <laughs> I don't hear him. I don't hear him saying anything about Cruz. the people, the people, the senators who oppose certification. I don't hear him talking about Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz. He yeah. might hate them, but he doesn't talk about them publicly. And you know, I, I, I don't, I don't see much. Stomach in the Republican. Look, some Republican donors have said that uh, they're very upset at, at the anti-Semitism and, and, and craziness and and uh, racism of uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh you know, the the Jewish lasers setting the setting the 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 wildfires in California. That's that's out there. That's 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 way out there. Yeah, you know, uh, Trump standards, which yeah. are
0: way out there. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. You know, it's it's like like some of it's like Sydney Powell when when you found out that that Trump thought she was too extreme. You said, "Whoa, she must <laughs> be pretty extreme." Uh, I I, but she's an elected representative. So you know what 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 Republicans going to vote or, vote to expel her from the caucus? I doubt that she loses her. Well, if she loses her committee assignments, it's going to be because the Democrats somehow use their majority to vote her off committees. But I don't see her own caucus stripping her of 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 uh, of her committee assignments. I mean, you know, she's she's been appointed by the minority leader to the to the Education and Labor Committee. And and she thinks that that. the, the school shooting in Connecticut was a false flag operation. Can you imagine? It's really
0: egregious, and I and I I really, ah, yeah, yeah. It's the, the Republican Party really should be under an obligation to rid themselves of this. I mean, I understand how it was, uh, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, yeah,
1: yeah. You know, you you can think so. Yeah, I can I, think so, yeah, but yeah. they don't think so. They're worried about, you know, they're, they're worried about what's going to happen in the next election. If these Trump voters, and let's just say Marjorie Taylor Greene is a, you know, a magnet for, for, for Trump voters. If these people abandon the Republican party, where are they going to be? I mean, look, I, I, I think that The democrats are actually relatively well set up to beat the historical pattern in the midterms in 22 you know by by the end of 21 we should have vaccines in people and the economy should be taken off and everybody's going to be happy we're going to be back to regular life the economic numbers are going to look fabulous who knows you know the the democrats might do uh, much better than the historical norm in the in the midterms of 22. I think Republicans know that and they, you know, this is, this is a party, a party which I identified with through, you know, large slots of my adult life, which hasn't been able to get uh, the most votes in a presidential election uh, since 1992, except once. Since 1992. So we're going on 30 years, right? And only once did the Republican presidential candidate get more votes than the Democratic presidential candidate—2004, yeah. uh, for those of you who are keeping score out there. Uh, re so, yeah, the Bush reelection after 9/11. Uh, wow, yeah. you know, uh, now they'll since Republicans control so many state legislatures, still they'll they'll still be able to gerrymander you know, the 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 congressional seats after the twenty twenty you know, when the twenty twenty census stuff gets in and we have to re, redo like in Texas, we're gonna get three or four extra seats, and you know that they're gonna be uh, divvied up in a way to maximize the the Republican vote in Texas, which is a majority. I mean Trump carried Texas by by six percentage points. But uh, you know, I I, I don't see uh a great incentive for the Republicans to jettison uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are they gonna gain? Who, yeah. Whose votes are they gonna gain? I think that's the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah,
0: no, I think you're right. I, uh, my sense is that you know, I, it was interesting to see how they were gonna act in the immediate aftermath. I thought that was a time to kind of wash your hands of it and try to move on, if that was the time you were gonna do it. And then once, once people doubled down on the same day as the insurrection, I, my thought was, yeah they're not they're not backing down. this is a this is a battle to the uh, battle to the end times yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well that gets that gets to to shift a little bit. That gets to the question of impeachment mm-hmm. and and the trial that'll begin next week of, of the former president in the Senate. I, you know in retrospect, given everything we now know, I've come to the conclusion that impeachment was a bad idea. I understand why Democrats pursued it. I understand why they thought, given the signaling that Mitch McConnell was doing, that maybe they could get 17 votes in the Senate, 17 Republican votes in the Senate to, to actually convict the, uh, the former president and then have the motion to, to bar him from federal office, which I think is probably what McConnell was thinking. but. Let's face it, you know, when, when 45 Republican senators voted to dismiss the charges against the president because it was unconstitutional to, uh, to convict a, a, a former president, not a sitting president, and thus the impeachment trial shouldn't even occur, right? That, I think that pretty much seals it. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna get an acquittal of Donald Trump, which he will say, see, I'm innocent. I, you know, in retrospect, and this is hindsight, 2020. I I'll grant you, I thought impeachment might might work in the immediate aftermath of the insurrection. But I think what what you know, if if I were thinking more clearly and Democrats were thinking more clearly in the white hot anger in Congress after. The, the insurrection. There just should have been censure motions. I think they would have passed in the House with a, a, a large majority and many Republicans joining. And I think in the Senate, you would have had a censure motion that probably would have gotten 80 votes. You know, only only our, our Senator Ted Cruz probably would have stood against it. Maybe Josh Hawley, you know, heroes like that. Uh, but, uh, I think that would have been better than than what we're going to end up with. Do you think I'm wrong?
0: I don't think you're wrong, but I it, it might have still been the right play at the time even given that it's going to end up playing poorly. I think at the time you had to see him as trying to overthrow the US government. Um and I think you're only I think your hands are tied then in my opinion. Like your your next move has to be to try to from office um even if the long term game is going to have some consequences that are going to be negative i was uh, i strategically maybe it was better to not do it um i think that that's sounds like what you're coming down on and fits with common criticisms of democrats but my own sense when i said it uh, and i remember saying it really strongly at the time which is why i as i'm thinking back on it i i i think i still feel that it was a sign that i was glad we sent as a country outward that was mm-hmm. that was louder than censure. Was, you know, despite this party um, having control right now, um, that there's a a large group of Americans <laughs> who think this is, is so bad that it's worth the political risks to impeach a president on the way out to say to the rest of the world, like, no, we have a functioning democracy here, and we are not going to cower to these types of attempts, but. I don't disagree with your political assessment that it's going to draw out again. He's again, going to get to say that, look, they tried twice and uh, they couldn't find me guilty. So clearly I'm not guilty. Um, And there are, there are real challenges with that, but hopefully your other, your other intuitions about maybe, people will calm down a little bit when he doesn't have the loudest microphone and there's a little bit of time and those types of things. And life is returning back to normal a little bit that maybe it won't be, uh, maybe it won't be a hiccup to, to, to the efforts at governance moving forward. Maybe it'll just be a one final thing for him to groan and moan about and everything else will be going so well that it won't have a huge, huge impact. But I I see your concern. Yeah um so i i don't think i have any other particular things that we needed to hit on today
1: the- well let's let's money. let's talk a little bit about you know we, we've spent most of the time talking about donald trump and he's out of office uh yeah, yeah, you know yeah. we had we we there's this question about you know the biden administration and the covid and the covid relief bill go big or compromise
0: yeah
1: and uh you know, the, there were 10 Republican senators, so that would be enough to, to, to break a filibuster, uh, who said that they were willing to, you know, support a bill that was about one-third the cost of the 1.9 trillion that uh, President Biden's proposed. You know, some people are saying, well, you you know, he said he wanted to govern in a bipartisan way. Here's an opening to do something not as much as he wanted, but it would be bipartisan. And other people are saying, why negotiate with yourself? You just won the election. If you can get through on, you know, this uh, rather complicated uh, congressional uh, action called budget reconciliation, and get around the filibuster and only need fifty votes in the Senate plus the Vice President to break the tie. Why not do it? So it's it's it that's a, I think an interesting uh, both yeah. strategic but it's a tactical debate but it's also kind of a philosophical debate. Better to govern you know in a bipartisan way or are you elected to do certain things and you should do them if you can pull it off?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good question. Um... So my own sense is that in ideal circumstances, you have two parties that compromise and you go back and forth and you, uh, you, you know, use those processes to improve the legislation. But 45% of Senate Senate Republicans just voted to not uh, have an impeachment trial because it's unconstitutional. Oh, no, no, no,
1: not 45%.
0: 45 of them. Yeah, you're right.
1: 45 of 50. 45 of 50.
0: So 90%. And something like uh, a similar percentage wouldn't certify the election results in the House with the same caucus we were talking about. So, in my mind, they're a hostile power. They're a hostile political power that would still like to overthrow Democratic elections. And you can't negotiate with them if they're not willing to accept that you legitimately won the election. Yeah, And so I, I generally think that you should find some ways to compromise, but not with a hostile power and not one whose ideology isn't working. That's why it's dying. <laughs> and yeah. so what they want us to do is spend less when every, well, when I think the main consensus among experts in this area would be now is a time to spend and reform and make a big push not worry about spending that's not that you shouldn't worry about spending but it's not the right error of the direction you want right now
1: yeah i mean to some extent this comes back to our earlier discussion about what can what can democrats do one thing they can do is act on the economic side and i you know i think that this might be tough to get through the debt. I mean, you gotta you gotta hold every Democratic senator, right? You gotta hold almost every Democratic member of the House, and you know there are there are Democrats, uh, you know, like Joe Manchin of West Virginia and the two Arizona senators, Kristen Sinema and uh, and the new Senator Mark Kelly, who you know might be a little bit more conservative on these uh, fiscal issues, but I, I think I think you go big uh, while you can. Uh, We we had a question come through in the chat is, do you think that Biden wants the bipartisanship to further his vision of unifying the country and healing the divide, especially in light of impeachment and unrest across the nation? I think, yes. I mean, I think that to the extent that he's even considering this, it's because he wants to be a great unifier, that he wants to show that bipartisanship works. But if it's at the expense of kind of the core economic elements of the platform that he ran on for election that unified the Democratic Party behind him, I think that would be a tough, that would be a tough thing to do. Also, I mean, we can talk about whether the economic situation now is the same as it was in 2009, right? And if the, 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 the remedies should, you know, are, would be, should be similar, but I think most Democrats think they made a real mistake in 2009 when obama tried to get republican buy-in on uh you know the the economic stimulus uh, package to to get us out of the great Re- great recession and and they think that he he might have you know given too much and waited too long so i i i come down on the uh there'll be plenty of time for bipartisanship down the road uh i think that you you should try to implement what you ran that's also a democratic principle, right? Implement yeah. the policies you said you were going to implement.
0: Yeah, and um, thanks for the comment there. Um, this, uh, we have a regular uh, commenter. I don't want to call him out in case he uh, doesn't want to be commented out. But thanks for um, thanks for the question, and, and thanks for sending us a couple questions this uh, this season. Um, so I'm not sure that bipartisanship and unity is is possible when one of the parties wants to burn it down mm-hmm. and i know that probably feels like a partisan thing to say um and so i i understand that um as as maybe a response to that but i think all you have to do is look at the behavior of the republican party over the last uh, six months but maybe the last year and uh you can't um, bipartisanship would be would be siding with leaders who want to overthrow the government and siding with leaders who tried to hide the coronavirus the extent of it and have done horrible things. <laughs> and so I don't think you can take a unity route given the dialogue of the Republican Party right now because yes. the their core platform is anti that it's anti unity it is making divisions it's spreading conspiracy theories it's spreading hate that's its core message right now at the elite mm-hmm. level anyways and so you can't you can't rally unity when the other party is a is a is a is a is a hostile is a hostile party to democracy but have- this is
1: right but this is the this is the bipartisanship argument right if biden can split off 10 or 15 Republican senators by compromising, moving to the center on, on, you know, split the difference issues like fiscal policy. This is, I, I'm not sure that I agree with this, but this is the argument. You defang the Republican party that is, that in, in, in the house and in some of the states is is clearly uh, uh, moving toward this this, Uh, what what we want to say uh, to a party that would damage the democratic system rather than, rather than play within it.
0: But they've already done that. Like, I don't think there's bringing them back in. Like they had their chance to come back in at the leadership level, at the elite level in the days following the insurrection. They had the opportunity to remove this man from office a year ago when he was doing horrendous things to our governance structure. They had the opportunity to rally around a pandemic relief, like you, you only get so many swings at bad behavior, and then you're
1: a bad agent. <laughs> so I'll, 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 I'll just play this out a little bit longer. Let's say I'm Mitch McConnell, right? I'd say the vast majority of the Republican caucus in the in the Senate supported the first uh, uh, COVID relief bill, which was, you know, what almost three trillion dollars, two, 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 some trillion dollars. Uh, and, and supported the, the, the bill in, in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, you know, if I were McConnell, I would say I can't speak for the House. And, you know, if we're speaking privately, a lot of those House people are crazy. Mm-hmm. But, I, but the Senate caucus, except for a few outliers like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are responsible people. We didn't, we didn't vote not to certify, only eight Republican, seven or eight Republican senators uh, refused to certify Joe Biden's election. I got up on the Senate floor before the insurrection and said that we had to certify this election and it was wrong and anti-democratic to oppose this. So I think, you know, that that would be the counter argument. Now, so at that point then I think you just you you got to say what are the merits of the particular issue and this issue being the COVID relief bill. Uh, to me, the 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 you know, when you look at the Republican proposal of what six hundred and some billion dollars—a lot of money—but yeah. it lacks. There's no money for state and local government, and state and local governments have taken a terrible hit. And they're the ones that are going to have to do the vaccine uh, distribution, right? They're the last—they're the last mile of the of the road to get the things in our arms. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they're and state and local government is hurting. I don't know why Republicans don't want to help them out. Uh, you know, v- much less money for reopening schools. And I think that, you know, I, I think we're coming to a scientific consensus that that classrooms are not a major source of spread, particularly for younger children. we got to get those people back, and we got to get those kids back in schools, and we got to get the teachers' unions to buy into that. And money will help, right? Uh, and the checks. Okay, so we can we can have an argument about the checks, right? I shouldn't get a check.
0: Yeah, I should not get a check. You
1: no, you probably should get a check. All right, I know how much money you make. Fair enough. Roughly, I know I I know how much money you make roughly because we work for a state institution. I know what your salary is, and you know what my salary is, and I should not get a check. Yeah. Maybe you should get a check. Maybe maybe not fourteen hundred dollars. Yeah. But you should probably get some kind of check, right? Uh, we've got to, we've got to extend unemployment benefits beyond, you know, April, May, June, whenever in the Republican bill they would run out in June or July, they've got to extend it beyond. We don't know when this vaccine's gonna, gonna create herd immunity for us. God willing, it'll be this summer, but who knows, it might not be till December. So people who work, you know, those frontline jobs, or people who work in industries that are really affected, like the travel industry and bars and restaurants. You know, you and I used to do this podcast in a bar, mm-hmm. and we used to spend money. <laughs> yeah, there, mm-hmm. we haven't done that in almost a year. Mm-hmm. So I I think we we gotta spend uh, spend more money, not less, right now. And look, I'm I, I'm I'm not I'm enough of an old Republican that you know. I think my taxes should go up. An old Republican, not a not a tax cutting Republican. You know, I, I worry about our overall fiscal situation in the country. I mean, I see it very much akin to former empires in their decline, where they go from being net creditors to net debtors. And we're a huge net debtor now, right? So I, because I, it's easy, because other people will send us their money. <laughs> <laughs> They'd like to buy our treasury bonds because they're confident in our political system and in our economic system. But that was true of Britain up until the beginning of the 20th century. It was true of other empires. So I, I worry about our overall fiscal situation. And, and if if I were running the show, as soon as we got out of this COVID thing and the economy started you know, shooting up, I'd say, okay, time to raise taxes on rich people like gauze. Right. Maybe even time to raise taxes a little bit on middle-income people like Bullock. But, uh, you know, now's not the time. Now's yeah. Not the
0: time. yeah, I just, uh, the truth isn't always in the middle. It's just, right. and sometimes it is, and sometimes yeah. it really is, and sometimes it's really not. And yeah. that's a good it, way to put it. Yeah, that's a good one. Thanks. Yeah. So you do need bipartisanship, but you need to have reasonable proposals and you need to have a party that isn't trying to subvert democracy. Yeah. Um, And, but it's hard for me to say it because I really, as you know, I'm a big believer in dialogue. I'm a big believer in consensus. Um, I'm a big believer in, in kind of using the democratic tools to build consensus, but so much of the leadership in that party lives in in, a, in an alternative reality, either uh, because their, their theories just didn't work or because of other things, um, yeah. hate or, or what other type of thing it might be. And it's not that those aren't the elements on the left. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we don't get to these that often because they haven't been in power. But there yeah. might be we've got to deal with some of the crazies on the left as well. There are some challenges there also. But it's not the president and it's not the no. leadership of the party. No, no. And it's very no. different. Exactly. Uh, So I, I, but I do want to, to to Nick and to other people listening, although I wasn't going to say his name now I've said it, but you know, this unity piece is important. It's what kind of got us talking about this this evening is we need a common set of facts. We need a common broad vision for America. It doesn't have to be exactly the same, but we need some, some shared vision, some shared narrative that we can all rally around. And it doesn't seem like we can, we have that right now, but my sense is that it's not by by moving towards where the Republican Party is right now, um, there's got to be another strategy for that. Um, so, yeah, that's the end of my rant. You got anything else to close us with, Greg?
1: No, I think I think I think we laid out some issues. We'll be coming back to these, but I, I think over time we'll probably talk more about regular politics ah. and less about and less about you know threats to democracy and and and. These these huge problems, which are real, but let's hope that maybe just dissipate over time with with normal governance.
0: Can be help. We can be hopeful. I. Uh, I it seems like uh, the Tea Party was Wave One, and Trumpism was Wave Two, and Wave Two was larger than Wave One. Um, so let's hope that Wave Three <laughs> does not come, and that it fades into the <laughs> to the sea. No,
1: no tsunamis.
0: Well, Greg, it's good to see you. We'll be back on February 15th, Um, and Matthias Portner will be with us um, that evening, so you won't have to just listen to Greg and I, and we're talking a little bit about Latin American politics um, and diving into some policy issues, so that'll be a lot of fun, Yep. and um, yeah, we'll see you then. Thanks, Greg, good to see you.